Yep, so you
Okay. So good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us at this session. We have a, a very interesting session planned. It's within the um, strand, if you want to call it, of uh, exploring research on food behaviors, community-based interventions, and food literacy assessment. I'm Suzanne Piscopo from the University of Malta, a longtime member of SNEB, and I'll be moderating the session. Um, we have four speakers, as you probably realized from the program. And um, we have an interesting variety of issues within this theme, starting from tool development to interventions and the whole components around the interventions, and then eventually even evaluation. So we're seeing kind of the journey um, along the, this track of interventions. So because of, you know, time is always precious in these sessions, so let's start off with our first presenter who's uh, Michelle Riley, and she hails from the University of Kansas Medical Center. And her topic, as you can see, is development of an objective food literacy assessment tool for young adults. Okay, we will be allowing a few minutes for questions after each presentation. Um, uh, and, you know, we'll have a microphone available for you because you we would like you to speak into the microphone because the session is being recorded. So, Michelle, up to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone. Um, yes, I recently finished my uh, PhD at the University of Kansas Medical Center, but I also hold a faculty appointment at the University of Kansas, which is different. Um, so I am here today representing both, and I can present this in like 45 minutes or an hour, you know, so I'm going to try to do 10. Uh, so we'll see how we go. Um, but that being said, if you, I, I might gloss over a few things, but I'm happy to answer more questions about anything after the session. Um, so what is food literacy? That's a good question. We could spend the entire 10 minutes talking about what that is. Um, but essentially, there are several definitions. For our purposes, we used the definition developed out of Australia by Vigen and Galgos uh, that classifies food literacy into these four major domains of planning and managing your food, selecting food, preparing, and then the eat domain. And so that is what we use to develop our tool. Why food literacy? Why are we studying this? Um, I have a background both with Extension, like a lot of you. I worked for the University of Maryland Extension for a little bit uh, before moving to Kansas, and I also worked for the last seven years within a culinary school. And so, you know, we saw a lot of, of different abilities related to food preparation, but obviously food literacy goes beyond just food preparation. But that was something I was very interested in. And the theory is that food preparation behaviors are linked to diet quality, right? That would be something we theorize. If we all had unlimited bu budgets and a private chef, we could know nothing about how to cook or prepare our own food and have great diets, right? Um, but that's not the reality for most of the individuals um, throughout the world. Uh, so that's obviously you know, something that we always encourage as nutrition educators is for people to think about how they're preparing food and have the skills and knowledge to do that. So just highlighting, there are lots of studies that have looked at this, food preparation and health, food behaviors, and what that outcomes are. So these are a few that I think are interesting. Also, my population was specifically looking at young adults, and so I highlighted some studies there. So Larson and team found that more frequent food preparation behaviors in young adults are associated with meet, more, being more likely to meet dietary objectives than their peers who weren't performing those behaviors. 
Um, another study by Hansen and first-year college students found that cooking frequency and meal planning behaviors reported by these students was associated with having a lower BMI and having more fruit and vegetable intake. And another study by Utter that was a longitudinal study found that young adults who reported having adequate cooking skills when they were between 18 and 23 and in the initial intervention also had better nutrition outcomes even 10 years later. And so ultimately, we decided that young adulthood was a really good time to intervene on food literacy. There's also a lot being done in childhood, and I think that's great as well. We decided to focus on that time period where people are really often starting to have to make these food decisions for themselves. Um, they're you know, going to the grocery store maybe for the first time or you know, having to access food and prepare it themselves. Uh, currently, there are nine tools that measure food literacy uh, in adults, range from 12 to 100 questions. Um, a lot of the, there are really diverse aspects of this. Um, they're primarily subjective self-report questionnaires, which can be really great and give us a lot of good information, but we really wanted to develop an objective measure so that we could really understand a little bit more about you know, what questions or, or concepts are people grasping and what maybe do they, do they really not understand. Because we know self-report sometimes can lead to bias in terms of you know, experiences, um, gender, culture, all those things can, can affect how someone reports themselves on those. Um, some of the tools also cover a lot of nutrition literacy topics. Um, and I actually developed this with uh, Dr. Heather Gibbs, if anyone's familiar with her nutrition literacy work and the inlet tool that was developed. That's an objective nutrition literacy tool. And so we actually you know, kind of developed these in a way that maybe they could work together. So ultimately, we had four phases. And I'm just presenting about the development and content validation phase. We did additional construct and criterion validity later on. Um, be thankful if you don't know what those mean. <laughs> no, <laughs> survey development's a lot of fun. Um, but the four phases that we did for our actual tool development was we first did semi-structured interviews with experts, um, did a develop draft of the development tool, um, had experts review that for content validity, and then we did a small pilot with young adults. And so ultimately we selected, we had nine, inter, nine experts, um, we selected them for their ex expertise working in either nutrition or culinary education with young adults or adolescents. Um, they were asked to describe the important knowledge and skills they thought young adults needed for each of those domains of food literacy. We analyzed uh, and did deductive content analysis for all of those interviews, which led us to develop that draft tool along with information we've gathered from current research. Um, we, when we got expert feedback on the tool then, so now we've got a draft, we sent it back to them. And for each question, they were able to rank it as on a scale of one to four as not relevant or extremely relevant to food literacy. Um, we also asked them if they thought the question should be kept or deleted. Um, do, you know, do you think it's a good question or not? And so we coded, you can see for um, relevance, if they said not relevant or somewhat relevant, as zero. If they said it was mostly relevant or extremely relevant to food literacy, then we coded that as a one. Um, and then we use that to calculate our item content validity index, which is really just percent agreement on that is valid. Um, so if an item content validity index of 0.75 would mean that 75% of experts thought that that was a relevant question or a question we should keep. Um, and so acceptable for our items was set at 0.75. And then for the tool as a whole, where you basically just take those 
all of those individual questions added up, divided by the number of questions, to look at percent agreement on the tool as a whole. Um, we set acceptable at 0.9 or higher. In our pilot then, we had students who were enrolled in a local college. Um, they completed that draft tool online, so it was all sent out via email, and we gathered information about who answered correctly and who didn't, because at this pilot, what we were really trying to see is, do the questions really give us insight? You know, if every single person gets the question right, well, that's probably not you know, hard enough or giving us the information we want, and if no one gets it right, then that may be something we need to look at as well. And so we cut out, set those. We also had some uh, students who were studying a food or nutrition degree, so nutrition, culinary arts, something like that. We had a really small sample of that, but those were our kind of our, our um, controls, per se. We thought that they should do well. So any questions that they did not get well, less than 40% of them got correctly, we really flagged. And then questions that 80% of just the general um, student population got correct, we also flagged that. So ultimately, just sharing some of our results, um, these were some of the key themes that came out of our semi-structured interviews. So these are what experts thought were really important for the young adults to be able to do in each of those categories. So they thought understanding food costs and resources and managing uh, food budget and meal planning were important skills that their uh, individuals needed to have. They thought that understanding food storage and quality assessment was an important key component, and even being able to use and substitute ingredients uh, was important, especially groups that worked with lower income populations, you know, following a recipe but knowing how to substitute if ingredients aren't available or too expensive. Um, with prepare, uh, looked at food safety principles during preparation, and then understanding how to utilize recipes, measurements, basic cooking terms, even like basic kitchen equipment, all of that. Um, what I remember one of the high school teachers who taught family consumer science kept being like, no one knows what preheat means, you know, or always things like that that they would just not know what they meant when they were reading through things. And then for eat, understanding nutrition needs and enjoying food and the social aspects of meals came out as key themes as well. So ultimately, we developed the draft tool. We had 62 items, um, 50 were objective multiple choice questions, and 12 were subjective scaled questions. We got feedback on that. I'm going to skip through some of this fast just so we can get to some other things. Um, overall, our item content validity ranged from 0.57 to 1, and we got rid of some of the questions, so ultimately our scale content validity index um, stayed, stayed acceptable. It was 0.96 in the end. Um, in our pilot study, our food nutrition students scored 98% on average. Um, our non-food nutrition students scored 84% on average, but we saw a wide range in there. So there was some you know, non-food nutrition students who did really well and some who did really poorly. And so it did kind of differentiate between that group. So ultimately, this is just an example of three questions that were on our original um, role, and we had uh, Basically, we had cho three choices. We could either delete it, change it, or keep it as is. And so you can see for question one and two, they're very similar concepts, right? They're looking at the numeracy aspects of budgeting. And we saw that everyone got question one correct, but we had more differentiation in question two. And so we, we decided that that was a better question to keep. So ultimately, we revised 14 questions, deleted 14 questions, and added 20 questions. And so we have now a 50-question tool 
that has 37 multiple choice questions. So those are questions that really had right or wrong answers, A, B, C, D. Um, and then we also had some subjective questions and we decided to call that the subjective food literacy scale that's not meant to be uh, used by itself but goes in hand in hand. And that has 13 questions that look at behavior, attitudes, and self-efficacy. So we've got an example here, and I'll leave you with these two slides up, and I can switch between these. This is an example of some of the objective questions that we had, and you can see, like, for select, that was a big one that people kept coming up with, we don't know where things should be stored. So that was a, an example of the question. We got the preheat one in there as well, because that came up a lot. Um, and then our subjective tool um, asked different things about behavior, attitude, so even how important is it to eat for health and well-being? Um, so we then did send this to uh, full-scale validation. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions about that as we move forward, but I think I'm getting close to time, so I want to leave time for questions about this part, but I'm happy to answer questions about the other part later. I know, we'll write like some questions. Um, the overall, just so the next step, so you know what we did with validation, in, and that isn't published yet, but we have validation data for over 200 individuals, and we also compared their score on the nutrition literacy tool, and we also collected food insecurity and diet quality data, which we are still analyzing. But our biggest takeaway, and I, I hear a lot of talk about food literacy and um, what in nutrition literacy, what the difference is. There's whole reviews about that. Um, but one interesting finding that I would share here with that, with our whole tool, overall we found it was valid, um, but we did that convergent validity that we did with the inlet, the nutrition literacy, we found it was moderate, which was pretty good, right? So they fit well, but our conclusions on that are, they're related, but they are distinct concepts that still need to be measured separately. Some other studies looking at food literacy, even in dietitians in other countries, have found that dietitians may not have, you know, they have a little bit higher on average food literacy than the general population, but just, you know, nutrition and food literacy are, are concepts that we, I think, need to be exploring individually. So that's my big, our big takeaway from, from that. So happy to take questions. Yeah. Yep. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Applebaum. Oh, okay. thank you. Right, so thank you. So we're happy to take questions. Uh, we do have a mic if oh, you want yes. to. Okay. Thank you for the great presentation. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about maybe you're in the process? Y you mentioned mm -hmm. that this is developed for um, young adults. How applicable it would be for the older adults, yeah. other age groups specifically, going to the older ages, mm -hmm. or are you working on that? Yeah, piece? well, yeah. Actually, we we think that it will be valid for all adult populations. We are actually currently just kind of by chance using it in a study of older adults, uh, specifically caregivers of those uh, with with um, Alzheimer's and other uh, dementias. Um, but actually, when I first started talking about food literacy, those are two groups that kind of came to my mind, young adults and older adults. Specifically, sometimes we see in traditional gender roles, older adults who have never had to be responsible for that, the food in their, you know, typically that was, you know, men, but it could be lots of genders. Um, when they, if like something happened to a partner, then they were, had never grocery shopped, had never, 
you know, been responsible for that. So that was always an area that I think is really interesting with food literacy. Um, so we think it will, you know, be valid in all adult populations. We just started here, but there's nothing really that that we developed in it that I don't think would be applicable. Obviously, we'll need to do like face validity testing in those groups, but um, I don't. We didn't design it in a way that would be, you know, limiting in terms of terms or something that would only apply to young adults. Great question. Afterwards, you know, you can meet up with the speakers and feel free to ask. Yeah, I can put my, I had my email up there too. I can leave it up for a second. <laughs> Thanks so much for the great presentation. Um, my question goes back to, you mentioned at the beginning that you have some extension background yeah. as well. And so I'm wondering, as you're thinking about this kind of tool um, and understanding these concepts, how do you think, um, or do you see opportunities for adapting this for kind of that outreach side of things mm -hmm. to be able to use or inform what outreach we're offering in food literacy. Yeah, absolutely. I think right now, the way a lot of our food literacy tools are maybe on the longer side because we don't have any basis. It's, it's more about develop, you know, gathering that information. What do people actually know? Like, what is a food literacy in our community? And I think we need to do that. But, you know, some of the, I had some like individuals from WIC who were on our, uh, expert committee and you know obviously this isn't set now where you know a 50 question survey is going to be a pre-post for a nutrition education session that's obviously very long so i think you know we need to we don't know what we don't know so i think we need to have the long tools right now and i know there's others that are are doing that good work to gather all that information but ultimately we'll need to make some kind of screener that's usable in everyday practice I'm afraid we have to stop there with the questions, but as I Thank said, you. feel free. Thanks again to Dr. Applebaum for that. And, uh, okay. So I would now like to call up, yes, Dr. Nurgul Fitzgerald, fine, from the uh, Rutgers State University of New Jersey. And as you can see, she'll be talking to us a little bit more about behaviors and a survey around behaviors. Dr. Fitzgerald? Okay, let me just put Thank that you on. Thank very much. Okay, on the, if you want that that way. Yep. Yeah. And you can use this or you can use this, whatever is easiest for you. I'll, I'll go with that. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, today I'm going to talk about eliciting temporal perceptions of a retrospective food and physical activity behavior survey among low-income adults. And actually, the first author of this abstract is Ching Chang, who is my uh, PhD student, who is about to graduate, uh, hopefully within a month. So uh, she had to make a choice. That's why she's not here working on her defense, final defense. <laughs> All right, so I'm here. Uh, hopefully, I will do justice for her work. So this is her sweat and tears. Uh, to give you a little bit of a uh, background, so many of the nutrition education programs use the pre-post testing, conventional pre-post testing before the program and after the program, um, including FNAP or other educational programs like SNAP-Ed. Uh, there's a potential for response shift bias. There is some uh, methodology issues there, so there could be a shift in the uh, how uh, respondents answer the questions depending on their changes of their understanding of the concepts or changes in the measurement, understanding of the measurement standards as they know it, or their perception of importance of the concept might change during the education. 
So considering all these, retrospective pre-post testing has been proposed and used in some programs. Some call these either retrospective pre-test, post-test, or pre and then kind of a uh, language or naming you might see around. So um, in this kind of a testing, both before the program and after the program, questions are asked at the end of the program in one session. And um, when we ask these questions, though, we don't necessarily know what people are thinking when we say before the program or after the program or when we say now, unless the question specifies that time frame specifically and it is often very difficult to include that information on top of everything else we had to include in the questions, right? So these are the issues to deal with and these were our uh, motivations. And we started this project with um, examining to um, examine the perceived timeframes for the retrospective pretest post-test questions among adult FNAP participants. And also we tested which retrospective pretest post-test format is easier and preferred by the participants. By the way, I forgot to, I apologize, I forgot to mention before, Jeb Bastian, who is sitting right here, is among the co-authors, and Jeb actually started this work at Rutgers when he was a PhD student there. Thank you for being here, Jeb. All right. Um, so this study was uh, conducted as part of the NC3169 multi-state uh, research and part of the Hatch project there and started with the Dr. Deborah Palmer and then I joined the group and uh, took over this portion of the research. Our participants, we conducted semi-structured uh, cognitive interviews. Our participants were 40 um, adult participants of FNAP, 18 years or older. Uh, they had to be native English speakers because we are asking specifically very language heavy uh, literacy requiring questions. Uh, recruitments took place in Colorado, New Jersey, Maryland, Tennessee, and Guam. We used a 20 item food and physical activity questionnaire, shortly FPAC. Uh, one it has five domains. We selected one, uh, to shorten that, uh, we selected one question from each of the domains of diet, physical activity, food resource management, food security, uh, and food, um, food safety. Uh, we also collected the demographic characteristics. So this is the first page of the FPAC. This is what the regular prospective version of it looks like. We had to play with it, of course, to turn it into a retrospective version. Um, so we, we prepared um, about four different versions of it, either questions, pre and post questions placed side by side on the same page or pre questions on one page altogether and post questions on a separate page altogether. And um, when they are side by side, we also configured them to show either the pre-survey or the post-survey questions first. So let me show that to explain that. So this is the side-by-side -side design um, showing the pre-survey questions on the left first and the post-survey questions on the right. And as you can see, we added the words before FNAP for the pre-survey questions and now for the post-survey questions to the original FPAC wording. For the single page version of the design, so um, 
These would be, for example, all pre-survey questions. I, I'm showing only one of the questions, but they were all would be listed in in same page, and post questions would be located on another page. So after participants answered each of these original questions that we turned into retrospective format, then we asked them, when you answered this question, what time frame were you thinking exactly? And if they needed further probing, um, we gave it to them. Interviews were audio recorded, transcribed verbatim, and we used template analysis with hybrid coding approach, analyzed it with NVivo. So we were looking for, do they differentiate the now from the before timeframes, and what kinds of timeframes are they referring to for those? So these are uh, some of the results, participant car characteristics, not surprisingly, majority female um, identified, self-identified. Um, we had some mixture of racial ethnic groups, as you can see, and um, quite level uh, dispersion of the educational. We had representation from different education levels as well. So let's look at some of the timeframes that people were using, um, so before versus now. We call this differentiated between now and uh, before versions. For the, on the left side of the screen, as you can see, before FNEP timeframes, people were giving us a variety of timeframes, specific dates or times. Uh, they mostly uh, concentrated around like within the one month before they started FNEP. So that's the largest group of responses. By the way, these percentages of uh, are percent of the responses, not percent of the people. So we are looking at out of 629 individual responses to a variety of all of those questions. On the, if you look at the now side of the times people were referring to when we ask them now, most of them, um, grouped around, this is 10% of the 629 responses, grouped around within one week, within like days, a few days to one week time frame. Another 10% of the responses were grouped around one week to one month, and then there were lesser percentages for the other time frames. All in all, it added up to about 53% of the responses uh, people were using specific times or dates to indicate. Now, there was another group, about 6% of the responses, they did not give us a specific date, but they just used, oh, it was, they were using the FNEP programming as the anchor to their responses, rather than thinking about, okay, when was it in the calendar year, kind of a thought process, they were saying, oh, it was before I started FNAP classes, or after I finished the FNAP classes, that kind of a differentiation. And then another group, about 5% of the responses, we could not gather any kind of differentiation, basically, either based on FNAP participation or the timelines they were using, they were either not consistent or they were not given us even after probing. So we call them not differentiable, so that's 5% of the responses. I think this last group is the most interesting to me and our group because 
as a mostly qualitative researcher, I was expecting to see a variety of dates and times and numbers and things like that, right? So, but then this was a large group, about 37% of the 600 plus responses, they were using other events that were affecting their lives, lifestyles, their daily routines, or things they do because of their schedules in their life, school schedules and things like that. Um, like we call them one group, we call them long-term lifestyle. Like if they were never doing that behavior, if they were never throwing uh, frozen food on the counter. So they were using that as, as an anchor to give us the answer. Uh, or daily routines, or they were using day of the I, oh, On Wednesdays, I always do this. On school days, I always do this. So they did not bother to think about that specific time, but the routine, what they do every day. In terms of the design, 68% of the participants uh, preferred the side-by-side -side format. And the main reason they gave us was because they said it was easier to understand, as you can see some of the quotes um, you're seeing on the screen. So um, in terms of the, uh, in summary, majority, about 59% of the responses included different time frames between before and now questions by either st stated dates or by stating the FNAP as the attendance, uh, FNAP attendance as the anchor. Another large segment, 37% of the responses anchored the time frames to the long-term or repetitive lifestyle habits. So when you consider these two groups, then our decision based on this data is that retrospective pretesting method could be suitable and applicable to these groups because they were able to differentiate the nows from the befores. But a small percentage of the responses, as I mentioned before, the, either the responses were not consistent, they could not differentiate between the time. So these could be happening because it, maybe the uh, participants were confused or there might have been some literacy issues. Then it tells us that this might present um, in terms of retrospective pretest post-test might be an easier option for most participants, like in FNAP programming or similar programs, but it might be challenging for a small group of them. Side-by-side um, -side questionnaire was preferred method, and it retros overall retrospective pretesting method can be also time-saving because you have to do the testing only at once at the end of the program, so it may save the uh, programmers from the beginning to cover other things in the education uh, plans. It may also address some of the potential response shift bias issues. Uh, further research where it takes us, I think we need to look into further in terms of the potential benefits, um, quanti analyzing quantitatively and test the feasibility. Um, of the retrospective testing in uh, programs such as FNAP, and further look into qualitatively in terms of those, um, what are those potential biases, why are they happening, and uh, what might be affecting those populations. And actually, uh, my student Cheng has been doing that, and she's writing the papers as we speak. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much.
so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Fitzgerald. Um, we do have time for a question. If anybody would like to ask a question. Um, okay. Oh, shall we go back there? Yeah. Maybe if it's short enough, we'll take the two. <laughs> if you can uh, answer it short. Sure. <laughs> uh, I was wondering about the um, uh, the place where the residents were, where they all. You you talked about the different uh, states or regions, but the, were they rural or urban? Uh, the, what is the last Rural part? Or urban? Oh, oh, good question. So this was wherever the FNEP programming was implemented in that state, um, Colorado State, um, Tennessee, Knoxville, University of Tennessee, Knoxville. So it was open to all. We did not collect the rural or urban information. That was not our uh, attention on, on this leg of the research, but sure. it could be anywhere in those the, states. The reason I was wondering about that was because of uh, the access to like um, stores or farmers markets or places where they could get those fruits. And the second um, thought I had was um, you were uh, collecting information based on the recollection of any kind of fruit, right? Like you're grouped like bananas, watermelons, apples, everything. So would it be more beneficial, like for example, to, uh, to separate based on the cost of the fruit? For example, like, see somebody might remember when they ate a banana. Banana is, more, is less expensive, but probably like, for example, to eat berries or watermelon, that might be a... Yeah, I think those are great ideas for a separate research project. I think in this one, we were specifically looking at how the retrospective method may potentially replace a prospective testing method in any educational programming in the research, uh, nutrition field. Okay, I'm afraid we're gonna have to Thank stop you. there for the sake. Thank you so much again, Dr. Fitzgerald. Thank you. Please do reach out to Dr. Fitzgerald afterwards if you have any further questions. And now we move on. Let me just close here. Okay, actually should be open down here as well. Here we go. Okay. Okay. So, yep, I can see she's already here. I'd like to introduce um, Megan Applebaum from the University of Georgia. And now we're going to take a little bit of a different take because we're going to be looking at the interventions per se, and as I said earlier, the components around that from policy and systems. So, up to you, Megan. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and good afternoon. Thank you for joining me today as I discuss the successes and challenges of implementing policy, systems, and environmental, or PSE, obesity prevention interventions in rural Georgia through the High Obesity Program from 2016 to 2023. The CDC High Obesity Program supports collaboration among the extension systems, local communities, and the university faculty to address food and physical activity access in communities where there's high obesity rates. In Georgia, we refer to this project as the High Obesity Project. This slide reveals Healthier Together's goals. Healthier Together aims to engage county partners using the community coalition model to guide and support obesity prevention, improve access to healthy food and physical activity interventions, and evaluate strategy, implementation, short-term outcomes, and costs. The Healthier Together initiative aims to implement environmental change strategies for obesity prevention in rural counties in Georgia. 
Our community-built coalitions work together to identify, direct, and implement their preferred PSE intervention strategies that are most beneficial to promote nutrition and increase physical activity in their communities. The preferred interventions for physical activity included sidewalk repairs, park renovations, community active, active design plans, walkability signs, and walking trails. For nutrition strategies, our coalition settled on community gardens, healthy food pantries, and coolers as their preferred interventions. CDC identified five rural counties in Georgia where at least 40% of the adult population is obese. We had two counties, Talifer and Calhoun, on our grant project in 2016, and three more were added in 2018, Clade County, Dooley, and Stewart. You can see our five counties highlighted on the Georgia map to the right. Most of them are located in the southwestern region of Georgia, far from the city of Atlanta, except for Talifer, which may as well be in another planet. It's still very much a rural area. So I wanted to highlight some county characteristics that separate our five counties and Healthier Together from more populated counties like Fulton County, where the city of Atlanta resides, and also compare it to the general state of Georgia. When looking at population per square mile, you can see that our five counties have drastically lower people per square mile compared to Fulton County and the general state of Georgia. When looking at percent food insecurity, you can see that our five counties have dramatically higher percentages of food insecurity compared to the populated county of Fulton and the general state of Georgia. So based on this table, it is evident that these five counties may face difficulties accessing fresh and affordable foods and may face unique challenges implementing um, infrastructure to support and promote healthy behaviors. Extension faculty and staff work together to recruit members in each county and form a Healthier Together community coalition. These coalitions aim to be representative of the counties and included community members and community leaders. You can see on the right, some of these members included nurses, law enforcement, school superintendents, faith leaders, and more. Faculty, extension faculty and staff worked together and facilitated these community coalitions to sit down, review their community health data, prioritize needs, and choose interventions that would be most appropriate for their communities. So for the sake of time, um, I'll review nutrition and physical activity strategies. Our community coalition settled on their preferred strategies. Most of them fall within these primary areas. I'll be reviewing healthy food pantries, walking trails, and walking signs. For our healthy food pantries, our, our food pantries successfully adopted 100% of the healthy donation and purchasing guidelines. We are also able to increase storage capacity for fresh foods because we were able to provide coolers and freezers to these food pantries. We face challenges with regulating the quality of food, even from regional food banks. We also face challenges with um, sustainability and accessibility with food pantries. And we also had inconsistencies in produce and fresh food access. For walking trails, we implemented nine walking trails in our counties, 
and installed signs in six of our cities. We struggled with walking trail sustainability. Per our grant, we can only use demonstration projects, and that means we can use impermanent materials, and so it was struggled with sustainability. There are also um, struggles with evaluation and impact assessment, as we only recorded self-report data and we had lack of observational data. This table summarizes the implementation and maintenance of our PSE strategies in our five counties through the Healthier Together project this past eight years. You can see that we implemented a total of 22 community gardens, nine grab-and-go coolers, seven food pantries. Of these, 72%, 66%, and 85% are still active. None of our food pantries fully implemented the healthy standards that we set forth. We implemented and still have 10 of our playgrounds still active. We implemented nine walking trails and eight are still active. We installed uh, signs in six of our cities and four currently have them installed. And all of our communities received active design plans. The reward is in the challenge. And we recognized grant restrictions, large geographic spread, limited human and material resources as significant challenges for implementing and maintaining our PSE strategies. We also face limitations with city and county finances and barriers to research and evaluation. Healthier Together progress is relatively slow and assessment challenges do exist, which were exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. However, these limitations can inform future strategy selection. We have to remember that slow progress is progress, and we have to celebrate the wins. There is an overall increased awareness for the need for change in our communities, community connectedness, and community capacity development. I wanted to recognize the collaborators on this project that made it possible over the past eight years. It takes a team, truly. And here's some more collaborators on the project throughout the past eight years. They were integral in facilitating the Healthier Together project. And this is a summary of our work. We hope to see improvements in health, including reduced obesity rates, and we'll be tracking this over time. As important, we also, see, we also can't wait to see more community-led change in our communities and improvements in quality of life for future generations to come. Thank you. Do you have any questions? Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Megan. So yes, we do have time for questions. Thank you. Hi, Megan. Great presentation. So recently, I actually became a co-investigator on the South Dakota Hot Project. So we're doing a lot of the same stuff. and. Mm -hmm rural communities in our state, and I agree with you. It's very rewarding, but very challenging at the yes. same time. I was wondering, have you been able to get any um, feedback from the community members and see if they're aware of the changes that have been happening in their community and if they're utilizing any of those resources? Yeah, um, I joined the project just last year, and it's been an eight-year initiative. So my mentor, Ali Berg, is in the crowd if you have any additional questions. Um, I don't know the exact specifics, but I know we have been um, 
We have an evaluation team that has been serving all of our communities and getting feedback, and they are utilizing our resources to a certain extent, and yeah. Yeah, we just recently did some evaluation on our project, and it's a struggle. So yeah, yeah I'd love to commiserate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for this, Megan. I, I'm wondering if you're, the community, the coalitions that were built are still functioning. Yeah, they are currently still functioning. In a few weeks, um, our team is actually gonna go to these counties to practice sustainability projects as our grant is coming to a close. So um, they are indeed still running. Questions? Uh, okay, uh, is it uh, Megan? Sorry, I can't remember your surname. Did you want to add something on to the question, or? Experiences in the community, and um, we actually recently published something in JNEV about a cultural approach to assessing um, these interventions in rural Georgia, and you know, there were some surprising results as far as us coming to these communities and then saying, you know, before you got here, we didn't know anything was wrong. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's been a little bit surprising, but we also have found that um, the interventions like the community gardens, even though they don't um, actually increase fruit and vegetable intake per se, um, that the communities are recognizing them as part of the project and that they're the visibility for the project and they have generated excitement for the need for change, right? So it's it's definitely a slow process, but I would be happy to commiserate with you as we are going to be starting our next round as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm sorry for putting you on the spot oh, there, but okay. I thought you might want to add something. Okay, so if we have no more questions, thank you very much again to uh, Megan Applebaum. Thank you. And we now invite our final speaker for this session. Let me just get out of here. Okay. Yes. Okay. Here we go. So yes, hi, welcome. Come along. Um, we have uh, Dr. Jessica Jarek, Jarek or Jarek? How should I pronounce Jarek that? Or Jarek. Jarek okay. Metcalf. And now we're also going to be talking about collaborations, but in a different way because this is collaborations in the sense of evaluation as well, and and the role of different partners there. So Jessica, to you. Sure. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you for bearing with me to the last presentation of this session. Hope everyone has had a wonderful and enlightening day so far, just like I have. I'm excited to speak with you all about transdisciplinary cross-sector collaborations to evaluate community-based food access and nutrition interventions. Um, my name is Jessica Metcalf. I am a program evaluation consultant with Green Mountain Evaluation. And the projects I'm going to speak with you about today are in collaboration with the FIG Lab at Cornell University, run by Dr. Roger Figueroa. So I probably don't need to tell this audience that the majority of Americans fall far short of meeting national nutrition recommendations. And millions of Americans experience food and nutrition insecurity and challenges in accessing healthy food every year. Food assistance programs, whether they're federal programs like SNAP and WIC or different emergency food systems like food pantries, can increase access for, to healthy foods and really help people um, achieve a healthy diet and lifestyle. 
So today I'm excited to speak with you about two community-based programs, um, SNAP Express and FarmShare, that serve individuals who utilize food assistance programs. Oh, and I can see all my spacing's a little wonky because the font changed. Please forgive me for any <laughs> odd spacing issues. <laughs> and I should tell you at the outset, this is not necessarily gonna be your traditional research presentation. Um, this work is all very much in process, so I'm excited to, to speak with you all um, kind of a, about that process, where we're at, the challenges we've encountered and the, the solutions we've come up with. Um, so just first to, to start off, I'd like to describe a little bit about our approach, this research. So we are out in the community doing um, community-based research in the real world where things can be a little messy. Um, so we really try to both accept and even embrace um, the complexity that comes with this community-based work and we're really grateful to have the opportunity to be on the ground in these communities that we're working in. Our team is truly transdisciplinary, so we have experts in nutrition and public health, education, community interventions, you name it. Um, and in, in, in addition to being transdisciplinary, we also really focus on cross-sector collaboration. So not only do we have folks from different disciplines, but we have folks from across a variety of sectors. So we've got folks in extension, academics, evaluators like myself. We have collaborators in state agencies. We have folks who are media experts and really help us with some of the technological aspects of our interventions. So we really do try to embrace having a comprehensive team. Um, we really feel that these complex societal issues, um, you know, can't, can't be something you figure out by yourself in a vacuum. Um, in addition, we do have a focus on policy systems and environmental change and the work that we're doing, so we really don't want to have all of the onus be on the individual. We're trying our best to create systems and environments that make healthy choices the easy choice. We strive to be very flexible and, and adaptive in the work that we're doing, um, really expecting the unexpected um, in this community-based work. And lastly, we focus on programs that are really gonna be able to have a sustainable long-term impact. So we focus a lot on capacity building with our partners so that when grant funding um, inevitably you know, finishes a cycle or dries up, we really can have programs that are able to be self-sustaining. So now to talk a little bit about the program specifically. So the first program I'd like to share with you is SNAP Express, which is an online grocery shopping platform for New York SNAP recipients that includes nutritionist designed meal kits. Um, our first phase with this project was a formative evaluation where we did 32 interviews, talking to folks about what would they need from a platform like this, really trying to do that formative research and do our homework to, to really develop an effective program. And in our current phase, we're doing more of a process evaluation that involves surveys and participant interviews. This is just a little bit of a visual of, of the process that folks go through when they purchase through SNAP Express. They can choose meal kits, select a local grocery store, buy their groceries online, and then follow our recipes that were designed by registered dietitians. I'm gonna jump to talking a little bit about FarmShare and then once I'm done with these brief descriptions, I'll go into a little bit of the, the challenges and adaptations we've made with these programs. So our second program is FarmShare, which is a food pantry-based um, subsidized community-supported agriculture program. And with FarmShare, we're gonna be doing pre and post surveys, veggie meter assessments, and a 24-hour dietary recall. 
And now I would like to spend the remainder of my time talking with you all a little bit about the process that we've gone through in evaluating these programs and some of the changes that we've had to make along the way to really adapt to the scenarios that, that we've encountered. So first with SNAP Express, we started our pilot test research with SNAP Express and had a lot of interest right off the bat. Had 30 people fill out our initial intake survey. We were really excited to bring them in and do the next phase of our process um, where we would have them go use the website, experience SNAP Express, complete a purchase, and then we would follow up with them and do post surveys to see, hey, how did that go? We would do interviews and, and get a better understanding of how well the website worked. Well, um, after many, many weeks, even months, I would say, of very valiant efforts um, on the part of our students, we had four of those 30 people complete the entire process. Um, and we realized it was time to revisit, <laughs> revisit our, our uh, order of operations here. So what we ultimately did is instead of requiring folks to go all the way through the process to complete a purchase on SNAP Express before they could provide their feedback, we decided, let's just leave that door open. Let's get feedback from folks who didn't complete a purchase. Let's see why. <laughs> you know, what, um, what stood in their way? What, what barriers and challenges did they encounter? Um, so we did some really deliberate follow-up with folks who fill out our initial survey but did not complete the process to try to better understand kind of what was going on there. And from then on, just stayed really flexible. So if folks wanted to observe the website um, but not necessarily go all the way through the process of making a purchase, we still allowed them to participate in that post-survey and interview and provide feedback. So that has been an adjustment that is allowing us to really capture a lot more data and information, um, both, both about challenges folks may have had in, in just completing the study and completing the survey and interview, but also challenges with the website itself. So with SNAP Express, we oh, allowed folks to participate in those interviews and provide feedback regardless. And then in addition, what we're gonna start doing moving forward is recruiting participants in person at different SNAP-Ed events, education opportunities, so really meeting people where they're at, um, going, going to the folks that, that we really hope to involve in this research. And then next, I'll talk a little bit about FarmShare and the adaptations we've made there. So FarmShare is um, run out of the New York Common Pantry, which is a pantry in New York City. And we did have um, some staff on the ground there while we were doing data collection. But it really is, it's a busy place. Um, they have a lot of, of clients coming in, a lot of folks coming through. So it wasn't really feasible for our one coordinator to be running through the survey with every single participant. And initially we, we ran into some issues with missing data and just kind of some data quality challenges. So what we've decided to do with FarmShare, and again, my spacing looks a little funky, um, is that we're gonna be involving staff at the New York Common Pantry in our survey data collection phase. Um, so we're gonna be compensating those staff members for their time, really showing that we value their participation and the relationship that they have with their clients. So understanding that they really may be best poised to help out with this research, to ensure that folks are engaged and that we've got good buy-in and that we really can get um, some more complete surveys. So we're really trying to leverage our partnership um, with this pantry, get them involved in the research, get them excited about the research. Um, you know, I always like to say that evaluation is something that is done with organizations, not to organizations. So really getting them involved um, and helping 
to collect that data we hope is gonna really increase our data quality um, and, and increase buy-in among pantry staff and uh, among participants of the program. And then our additional future direction with FarmShare, there is a new program called FoodMD, which is gonna be a produce prescription program out of New York Common Pantry. They recently got a um, GUSNIP grant, so that is gonna include um, farm shares. So it will be prescribed um, by a doctor, there will be nutrition education, but the folks who participate in this FoodMD program will also receive three months worth of these subsidized um, farm shares through the farm share program. So we're planning on expanding, doing more of a multi-component intervention with FoodMD next year. All right, so kind of my takeaways here and, and lessons learned from this process. I apologize for not giving you any statistics at all. Um, no numbers in this presentation, very process oriented, um, but really the, the hallmarks of our research, um, flexibility in community-based research is really crucial. Um, expecting the unexpected, embracing the fact that, you know, that's just kind of how it is. We're out in the real world. Um, we want our programs to be accessible um, to communities, to, to wider audiences, and as a result, we have to be really agile and, and kind of think of that as, as a hallmark of our approach. Um, we're really focused on reducing barriers to participation, whether that's participation in the research itself, you know, filling out surveys or completing interviews, or barriers to participation in the, the programs and interventions. So really just making it as easy as possible for folks to get involved, whether it's our partners um, at our, our collaborating organizations or whether it's um, making it kind of easier for folks to, to participate in data collection. Um, we definitely want to maximize the efficient use of resources, so we realize that, you know, rather than focusing all our resources on having, you know, a coordinator from Cornell go to the pantry, let's kind of think about how we can leverage um, the, the folks that are already involved, so, so trying to work with the pantry staff and think about how that may be a better use of, of, um, of providing um, paid assistance with this project. Um, building trust with potential participants is also really critical, so that's part of why we're going to be going in person to do recruitment, um, really meeting people where they're at, both, you know, physically meeting them where they're at, going to um, different classes where our potential participants might be hanging out, and also, you know, meeting people where they're at, you know, psychologically, where, where they're ready to, to make changes. All right, so I think I am still within my time here. Um, Definitely want to acknowledge all of our collaborators um, on these projects. It really, you know, takes a village and is absolutely a team effort um, between our organization, um, my organization, Cornell, Extension, um, the pantries we work with, our, our media partners. So really appreciate all of the contributions from, from those individuals. And with that, I will pause and uh, see if you have any questions and please um, you know feel free to ask questions about these programs but feel free also afterwards I know everyone was talking about different evaluation challenges so if anyone wants to talk evaluation and commiserate I always uh, love to do that as well please do not leave this room with tears in your eyes <laughs> but tears of joy okay thank you so much uh, Dr. Mehta we do have time for one question so if there's any burning question somebody would like to ask? Again, it was a different um, perspective on the evaluation, as, as Dr. Metcalf said, process. 
Any burning question? Okay. Well, I'm sure you, you know, if you do have questions to ask, you'll meet up with the speakers later on. And uh, so I'll thank you all for attending this afternoon. Uh, thank you. Had a great audience. Thanks again to all the presenters. Thank you so much. You do have a 15-minute break now, and then the, you can move on to the next session. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the afternoon and evening. Thank you very much. And thank you to Caitlin, our volunteer, for helping us out. Thank you, Caitlin. I'm just poking around. <laughs> 